podcast from Green Curtain Theatre. In today's podcast, we focus on the work of London Irish playwright Martin McNamara. Martin, whose parents came to London from Cork and Cavan, has written several plays on a London Irish theme. Two of these have been for Green Curtain Theatre. The first, Traitors, Cads and Cowards, is set in Wandsworth Prison in the summer of 1916, when volunteers from the Easter Rising were being held there. The second play, Mosley Must Fall, is set in Whitechapel in October 1936 and outlines the choices an Irish family had to make when Oswald Mosley and his fascist marched towards the Jewish ghettos. You can find out more about Martin's plays and films on his website, www.martinmcnamara.org Now we will listen to Irish actor Donald Cox read Dennis. So what can I tell you about him? Well, he could sing all right. Knew all the words to this. Believe me if all those endearing young charms. But what about the man he was? What about where this man found his joy? I know he did love a funeral. That was his thing. He found no joy at the job, that's for sure. Thirty years stood watching over rooms of paintings he didn't understand, made by artists whose names he could barely pronounce. An overweight sack of body odour trapped in a polyester uniform stood in the corner of the gallery, invisible to the well-heeled crowd that glided past every day, making themselves feel more worthy with a dose-up of culture but he did love a good funeral. He would go to the funerals of people he didn't know to represent the family, he said. He used to rate them, had set ideas on what constituted a good funeral. Mostly it was how generous they were with drink. Here were the twin pillars of how to rate a funeral. Drink served and how much singing was encouraged. People had to be respectful, solemn, lowered their eyes as the coffin passed. Dress appropriate to the day. Black tie, neatly knotted, top shirt button done up, laundered and ironed handkerchief in chest pocket of jacket. And no fucking jeans. Then back to the house. The doors would be wedged open and mourners be gathered in huddles in the kitchen and in the back room and in the parlour or be sat up on the landing stairs. All the people had a drink put in their hand and they remembered the dead and then they sang. The worst sin was when the family handed you a bottle of weak lager from the supermarket and some small sandwiches and that was your lot. 
How could you send someone off and be so miserable about it, he'd say. He said there had been funerals when he actually felt ashamed for the corpse. We have to make sure there's lots of drink. Dennis always said the English didn't know how to die. He said they didn't know how to organise a good delivery into the next world. They would give you cups of tea and cut off sandwiches and stand around being embarrassed, as if death itself was a lapse into bad manners. I think what he appreciated most was the formality of grief. Sorry for your troubles. Have a glass, Dennis. Okay, so. Sorry for your loss, Rita. Have another, Dennis. Just a small one. An over-generous tilt of the teacher's bottle. Give us a song. No, I couldn't. Go on, Dennis. Maybe later. Make a space for Dennis there. And then he would be persuaded to it. It was the formality. The way you could wrap up all emotions into a tight fist of modest condolence and correctly knotted ties and glasses refilled and then release them through song. There wasn't much opportunity for song in his life. That's why he loved the funerals. You heard of Count John McCormack? Everyone said he sang like Count John McCormack. They would be gathered after the funeral into the parlour, the old boys, and they would say, Give us a song, Dennis. And he would say, No, no, I can't. But he knew they would keep on insisting, and someone would refill his glass. So he would stand, and they would hush the people in the corner that were still talking. They would go silent, and the silence would spread to all the rooms in the house. Only then would he begin. And that was him then. Those moments. Those were the moments when he was best in the world, when he was alive. Of course, there was drink. They all had drink. It was no thing for a man to be drinking. Everyone was quieted and listening at him, standing in the middle of the floor, launching into... Believe me if all those endearing young charms. There would be nothing but the sound of his lonely, unaccompanied song pervading through the house and all its corners. This rich tenor holding the notes, turning the words around in his mouth, his eyes closed in fierce concentration. The glass of teachers held like a chalice at the Eucharist, this congregation, frozen in absorption, caught up in the reverence with which he sang. And then Jim Gillen would start to cry and talk about his mother, dead twenty years earlier. And when Jim Gillen cried, he always had a nosebleed. Of course, Gillen never had a clean handkerchief in his life. And so Dennis would have to remove the one from his top pocket and give it to Jim to staunch the blood. But he knew all the words to believe me if all those endearing young charms. It was his moment, you see. It was his hour when he was connected. It was real. It's important to remember that. 
We cannot miss those moments. We have to recognize them. And that was his moment. I see that now. I didn't see it then. I didn't understand what he was trying to impart when he sang. But I see it now. I understand it now. Gillen died too a few weeks back. One of the last of the old boys. Gone. His useless sons organized the cheapest, then to the back room of their local, a few curled-up sandwiches and bowls of crisps and not a penny behind the bar. And they got a DJ, some clown with a CD player and a pair of speakers blaring out Irish songs, the fields of Athen Rye, and Jim Gillen's sons at the funeral of their father in their T-shirts and their fucking jeans. At one point, Jim's last remaining pals had enough and got the DJ to switch off his speakers. Go on, Dennis. Give us a song. So he rose to his feet slowly, unsteady, spilling some of his glass. He composed himself while a bunch of young ones kept laughing in the corner. He started in on the song. Believe me if all those... Halfway through the first verse... He lost the words. He started again, but that only seemed to befuddle him more. Some more of the crowd went back to their conversation, ignoring him as he tried to shift to the chorus and then to sing louder to the men above the rising chatter. Finally, the DJ put on Fairy Tale of New York, and people turned their heads away, and quietly he sat down, confused, defeated. He'd spent his life standing in a corner, protecting bits of art he didn't understand. And he hated it. He hated it right up until the day his manager opened his work locker and the empty bottles fell out, and he sacked him on the spot. All he wanted was to sing. And that snooty crowd, the arty lot, looking up at the dead paintings, they couldn't see that they had an actual artist a real, living artist, right there among them. That middle-aged man stood over by the fire extinguisher with the broken blood vessels on his nose and the guts straining the buttons on his regulation shirt and with that stupid fucking hat they made him wear. They couldn't see the man, let alone recognize the artist. But that is what an artist is. The artist is the one who needs, needs you to understand to express his art. The singing was breathing to him, and when he could no longer breathe, he died. It was only at the funerals. That was where he had been allowed to express his art and to live. That was where he found his joy. Don't try to rob him of that. Don't you piss on that. As the sunflower turns on her god When he says The same look which she turned When he I began by asking Martin if he thought that lack of opportunity was at the heart of the piece. 
I'm not sure it's about lack of opportunity. I think it's more about people's um, people's sense of who they are, who they truly are, which is often completely contradictory to the lives they live or the job that they do or how they earn their living. Um, and I think that's a kind of universal thing. I think there's a lot of people who who feel that there's some other life that they should be living that they're not. And I think that's um, at the heart of Dennis, I think. Thanks, Martin. And could you tell me a little bit more about Dennis? I think there's a lot of my um, my own father in Dennis in that he was someone who, who, who drank and who worked as a security guard and who wanted above all other things to sing. So in a way, I suppose the piece is uh, trying to work out who he was. I mean, he died um, when I was in my early 20s um, and I don't think I ever really got to know him. And I don't think, um, so I, I, in a way, I suppose it's trying to work out who he was and, and his motivations in life. Was there any other reason you chose to write about the wake? I uh, grew up in a kind of Irish enclave in South London um, and a lot of the, my most vivid memories of childhood were funerals and wakes and parties where you get this group of Irish people who come together and they drink and they kind of mourn or they'd remember through song. Um, and there were always people who had their their pieces that they did, and it was all very respectful, and it was kind of a, a, a kind of focused mourning for people who, who who didn't really express their emotions in many other ways. This has been a Green Curtain Theatre podcast recorded in March two thousand and nineteen. Visit our website www.irishinlondontheatre.co.uk where you can also subscribe to the podcast service to be informed about new episodes as they are released.